3 triple Z. 92.3 FM. The following program is in English. Thank you. To life. You're tuned in to L'Chaim, to life, with your host, Morris Klein, who just happens to be my baby brother. Shalom Aleichem, welcome back to L'Chaim, to life, Jewish life and more. I posted a photo of a can of Rexona deodorant on my Facebook page today, and it's official. I have finished my last can of Rexona deodorant and box of Omo washing powder, never to be purchased again, both manufactured by Unilever, the owner of the anti-Judea and Samaria, anti-Israel Ben and Jerry's. That's about $30 less net profit for Unilever per annum, along with my never to buy anything associated with Unilever ever again. I will also be putting a few more companies and countries on my not-to-buy list due to their rabid hostilities to Israel. More about that another time. Maury's guest today is the delightful Justine Sedman with the PJ Library Australia New Zealand, an organisation that provides free Jewish books. David Schulberg has put together a terrific mythbuster on the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. I'm quite sure our weekly radio tour guide, Effie, will take us to another spectacular place in Israel and my guest, Shai Zaravach, is a facilitator and takes care of business the Israeli way. So on with the show. This is it. You're listening to L'Chaim, to Life, Jewish Life and more here on 92.3 FM, 3 Triple Z. Hang around. As the commercial investment arm of the Embassy of Israel in Australia, the raison d'etre of the Israel Trade and Economic Commission is to promote, enhance and facilitate trade, investment and industrial R&D cooperation between Australia and Israel. Joining us tonight in L'Chaim is Shai Zaravach, the Trade Commissioner of the Israel Trade and Economic Commission Australia. Shai, welcome to L'Chaim, to life, Jewish life and more. Thank you, Maurice. Thank you, George. It is a pleasure to be on your show. Shai, I understand the Israel Trade Commission is under the Ministry of Economy and Industries Foreign Trade Administration. What is your mandate here in Australia? And I believe that includes New Zealand and Oceania. That is correct. Everything you said is correct. I'm happy to elaborate and explain in a bit more details. We are an office at the Embassy of Israel. The embassy is based in Canberra, which is the office responsible for enhancing, supporting, you mentioned them all, overall economic integration and the sick and desire for partnerships, namely increase of trade between the two countries, between Australia and Israel. Trade is a large term that refers to many commercial uh, business cooperation engagements, but it is everything to do with supporting Israeli and Australian companies to meet each other, to realize the potential to partner with each other, to invest in each other, to adopt and to do business with each other, to put it very simply. Our work and responsibilities, by the way, it's very similar to many other countries. Australia has its own Austrade agency, part of DFAT. So the Foreign Trade Administration of Israel, it is then again very similar, very mirroring Austrade. It is the Israel arm under the Ministry of Economy. My office, called the Israel Trade Commission Australia, right, is one of 45 offices around the world in countries, basically markets where Israel has economic and commercial interests. It has many, as you can imagine, in growing markets, in the EU markets, right? 
there's one office here in Australia, and everything we do is aimed towards working with companies, with investors, with startups, with entrepreneurs, to help them venture into the markets, to help them with either information and data required to know, to be aware of, and much more so to provide a variety of business development services, including opening doors, suggesting, navigating, contacting, and working with Australian businesses, corporates, organizations, of course, governments, to help companies meet each other, to make entrepreneurs meet each other, to, to help business flourish, okay? This is one element, or sometimes I explain that my office is the, like a, a table with four legs. Let me focus on two of them, if I may, okay? So we can turn the table into a coin with two sides. One side is the immediate individual professional support to individual companies, company A, company B, company cyber, company fintech, medical equipment, very different and very focused on their own industries. And the flip side, on the other side of the coin, is to generate value to sectors themselves, not just companies that we are working and supporting, but sectors through different platforms, different initiatives, namely before, after COVID, business delegations, participating in major global events, either in Israel or Australia, so exhibitions in different fields and sectors, where our work will eventually be generating engagements, meetings between sites on sectors, not just individual companies. So a group of companies or many companies and startups and investors in the same sector. I can give a few examples, but that's largely who we are and what we do. We are business trades investment facilitators, government managed, okay? We're not consultants or agents. And our overall desire, appetite, but responsibility and mandate is to strengthen, is to promote, is to connect. Creating unions. Terrific. Shai, um, uh, how have you found the Australian way of doing business? And we're nearly two years into COVID. How has that impacted on uh, your business aspirations here? Good question. To try and answer how do I find it, I find it absolutely very positively. There are very unique characteristics which I realised over time. And it is the Australian altogether mindset and the Australian way of doing business, its experience and its forecast to the future. I have to say it is indeed different from other places or at least the way it is done in, in Israel. Leave aside the, the two years of COVID and the many different outcomes and changes that it has taken, the past almost three decades, Australia has been enjoying an overwhelming economic success and prosperity driven by many different reasons, but largely because of the appetite and because of the demand for its products, primarily driven by the resource and mining industry. Largely, and definitely from 2015, with one large market in Asia, uh, this is China. The results, leave aside the past two years, is a reliance on what the earth and ocean has been provided to this great nation, which has been outstanding, very relevant, and very supportive to the Australian industry altogether. Up until fairly short time ago, maybe a decade ago, five, six, seven years ago, the tectonic change that the global economy has been shifting towards technology, innovation, and the digitization of the entire industry. Australia is catching up rapidly, very impressively. But Australia is looking into the future and it is a bit concerned that it is not in the forefront where it wants to see itself as a technology leader. And it is doing governments, federal government and others, and of course, the private sector are investing enormously into closing the gap, into developing your own technology, innovation, culture and ecosystem. But the next 30 years will be different than the past 30 years. I think it's evident. Everybody understands that. And if it, it will be largely driven by the fourth revolution of industry, advanced manufacturing, and the, the entire digitization of the future. And 
Israel has been there right from the beginning, and Israel has a very advanced technology, innovation, sector, culture, and industry. One of the reasons why two countries are very, very friendly and close to each other and with a lot of interest to partner one with each other. Specifically referring to the past two years, right when COVID hit, everybody were in a kind of shock. Certainly when the borders were closed, we all are familiar and are designed to travel. Definitely if you're living in Australia and, and travel to Israel. Shortly after, everything turned online and the amount of initiatives, business events that I mentioned in my introduction saw it taking place online, including full-fledged commercial events like exhibitions with panel discussions with speakers and the like, and of course, business meetings. So volume of events have gone up and trade has not been hurt or damaged or left behind uh, waiting for borders to be open. We all adopted quite quickly and continued supporting companies, sectors that I mentioned in my opening remarks. Good to hear. Shai, in just under two weeks, there is a Prime Minister's Summit coming up in Israel. I'd like to play a short clip for our listeners, and we'll be back to you in a moment. It's a new world out there. Normal has changed. Countries, industries, and companies are required to find smart mobility solutions in a complex reality. Israel is a small country with a global impact. A decade ago, the government created a national strategic plan with the goal of developing new smart mobility solutions that answer the world's most profound mobility challenges. Today, a decade later, Israel is an international leader in the field of smart mobility. What drives this success? A unique ecosystem that includes a vibrant mobility tech community with hundreds of startups that develop cutting-edge technologies that answer the world's most urgent mobility needs. 30 international R&D centers, leading academic research institutions. Some of the world's most talented engineers, scientists, and developers, and a government that provides financial and regulatory support. With such a unique ecosystem and a visionary mindset, no wonder Israel is being praised around the world for its advanced mobility solutions. In the past years, Israel has hosted the largest international annual summit in the field of smart mobility, with more than 5,000 participants from over 40 countries, including the world's leading decision makers. Smart Mobility Initiative, your highway to the Israeli smart mobility ecosystem. Shai, that is a terrific clip. Our listeners can find that on Facebook and at Israel Trade Commission Australia. We'll give out all the details later. Please expand on this Prime Minister's Smart Mobility Summit. Okay. There's two events that the Prime Minister of Israel is going to be highly involved in the next 10 days, two weeks. One, very separately, um, he is going to visit the Israeli Prime Minister and also Australian Prime Ministers. We'll be visiting and we'll be meeting each other in Glasgow, in Scotland, discussing the COP, the Climate Change Summit. So that's one thing that the Israeli Prime Minister is participating in, focusing on alternative energy solutions, renewable energy that would need to be not only adopted, but regulated in a global manner. Very separately, but quite connected, an event, an exhibition on the conference is taking place in Israel. The full name indeed is the Prime Minister Smart Mobility Conference. Its original name, interestingly enough, is Smart Fuel Choices, referring to alternative fuel solutions or development within this field that Israeli companies and startups have been in the forefront of. But over the years, it became so successful that it was catered for the entire automotive tech industry. And the name adopted is Smart Transportation or Mobility. It's an event where about 500 startups and companies 
startup companies and other companies which are more mature are exhibiting physically on the ground and visitors and delegates are going to go to Israel physically and also engage virtually to meet with those startups, particularly from auto manufacturers, from governments, transportation ministers, from investment funds that want to get firsthand understanding how the future of transportation would look like. Israel is in the forefront. Scores of startups that I mentioned are ready and are exhibiting. There are a growing number of multinational auto manufacturers from General Motors to Japanese automakers that have research and development operation in Israel. And so the event is focused on that sector. And the keynote speaker is no other than the Prime Minister of Israel. Outstanding. Shai, um, we're running out of time. Very quickly, what kind of services can you offer Australian business people who want to engage more with Israel but aren't sure where to start? Always can start talking to ourselves. I am managing a team of Australians working with me, speak the language, know how to engage and connect, guide and suggest how to, with whom. Best is to start with us. I'm happy to provide all our contact details. And I should let our listeners know that the Prime Minister Smart Mobility Summit is a virtual event as well, and registration is now open. That wonderful clip that we played earlier is available on the Israel Trade Commission Australia Facebook page. I exhort everyone to check it out. It makes you proud to be a Jew. Shai, people want to contact the Israel Trade Commission. What are the details? Very simple. Sydney at Israel Trade in one word, dot G-O-V, dot I-L. Terrific. Shai Zarevich, Trade Commissioner of the Israel Trade and Economic Commission, thank you very much for joining us on L'Chaim. We've run out of time. We'll have you back again early at 2022 for an update. Thank you very much for joining us on L'Chaim with your very, very important work. Yasha Koyak to you and the team at the Commission. Thank you very much, Maurice. Toda George, both of you. It's been my pleasure.
I'm Ernie Singer, and this is your daily newscast from Israel News Talk Radio. The Times of Israel reports the police are investigating a complaint from three Red Cross workers that they were pepper sprayed by Israelis on Tuesday as they surveyed damage to olive groves between the Samir and Palestinian Authority village of Borin and the nearby Jewish community of Yitzhar. The Israel Defense Forces provided first aid to the Red Cross personnel. Despite tensions on the Lebanese border, the IDF announced on Monday that it has opened the border to allow agricultural workers from Al-Jabal, Aintaron, and Belida to harvest olive trees in Israeli territory as a goodwill gesture in light of the economic situation in Lebanon. An army spokesman told Agence France Press that several groups have been allowed across the border since October 10th. Citing several sources, the Tatspeed Press Service reports the Air Force dropped leaflets over southern Syria on Monday, warning Syrian army soldiers to refrain from cooperating with Lebanese terror group Hezbollah and other Iranian-backed forces operating against Israel in the area. Haaretz reports the defense establishment has identified growing Iranian efforts to establish an array of surface-to-air missiles in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and other locations in an attempt to disrupt Israeli air attacks and bring down an Israeli aircraft. Defense sources say that the aerial defense systems manufactured by Iran have helped Syria shorten their response time to Israeli attacks and have improved their capability to destroy the ammunition fired by Israel in Syria. Officials are concerned over the possibility of these defense systems finding their way to terror groups such as Hezbollah. Arucheva reports it was cleared for publication on Monday that during a briefing at the Blue Flag 2021 International Air Force exercise, that security officials revealed that Iran fired at Israeli warplanes during a recent attack in Syria. Israel hosting several active participants and observers, including a first-time visit by the head of the United Arab Emirates Air Force under the Abraham Normalization Accords. The Times of Israel reports Syria was hinted as a target country in drills, while an organizer said that the exercise was not meant to simulate an attack on Iran's nuclear effort. The website has learned that the Air Force will start training for a strike on Iran's nuclear program in the coming months. Some parts of attack plans will be viable shortly, while others could take more than a year. Representatives of Iran and the European Union have scheduled a meeting on Wednesday to discuss keeping the 2015 agreement on the nuclear program alive. A United States official said on Monday such talks were in a critical phase, adding that U.S. and international patience with the Islamic Republic on compliance with the deal is wearing thin. Gas stations across Iran malfunctioned on Tuesday due to a massive cyber attack, almost two years after nationwide protests of gas shortages. People trying to get a lower price with a government card were said to receive a message with a number used in July's hack on trains. There was speculation about whether the attack came from the U.S., Israel, or a range of local Iranian anti-regime groups. Messages were reportedly posted in some hacked systems, demanding to know from Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, where is the gas? The U.S. State Department said on Monday that normalization between Israel and Sudan will have to be evaluated in the wake of Sunday's military coup in the African nation. The Times of Israel reports an unnamed senior Sudanese diplomat was quoted Monday by Israel's public broadcaster as saying that the coup is not expected to dramatically affect the normalization process because many of the military leaders support normalization efforts. The diplomat warned, however, that the identification of the military with the normalization efforts could backfire, saying the people were fed up with military coups. It was noted that Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok, among those arrested early Monday, had intended to travel to Washington soon to formally sign the normalization deal. The Associated Press reports a coup leader said on Tuesday that the deposed prime minister is being held for his own safety and will likely be released soon. Israel taking a wait-and-see attitude before commenting. Foreign Minister Yair Lapid hinted agreement with the European Union and leftist members of the coalition on Monday 
in their opposition to bids going out for 1,300 dwelling units beyond the 1949 armistice line in Judea and Samaria. Conceding coalition division on the matter, he told a meeting of his Yesh Atid party that while he allowed for natural growth, next time I will be in the room during decisions on such matters. This has been Ernie Singer at Israel News Talk Radio. The news from Israel is courtesy of INTR, Israel News Talk Radio. Listen online to more straight talk from Israel at israelnewstalkradio.com. Justine Seidman is a passionate and dedicated Jewish educator and community engagement professional. She has experienced Jewish life in communities across the globe, from South Africa, where she was born, to New York, Tel Aviv, Chicago and Australia. Justine spent three years as the director of the Sydney Jewish Writers' Festival and has just retired after seven years as the director of PJ Library Australia and New Zealand. And it's the wonderful work of PJ Library that is the focus of our chat today. Justine, welcome to Lachayim. Thanks, Maury. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. PJ Library partners with communities around the world to provide families raising Jewish children with the gift of free, high-quality children's books, music and resources that foster deeper engagement with Jewish life. Could you tell our audience about the history of the library? Great question. We don't actually call it a library because it isn't a library in a traditional sense. So when we refer to it, we always say PJ Library. It was a program started by Harold Grinspoon. Harold is now, I think, almost 93. Harold was inspired, interestingly, by Dolly Parton, who has her own imagination library. Dolly Parton's vision was to encourage literacy. Harold's vision is to encourage Jewish literacy. He started in his garage, actually, in Western Massachusetts, in a small town called Springfield. And he he basically saw, saw that there was a, a need for high-quality Jewish books. And his vision was that every child should have their own Jewish library of books that would engage and grow with the child and start a conversation, allow families to engage in conversations around festivals, around Jewish values, Jewish ideas, Jewish history, Jewish heroes. And that's how it started in Harold's backyard. And he himself purchased the first run of books and posted them to people that he knew in Western Massachusetts. And it slowly grew from there. It was picked up by the Israeli Ministry of Education, Misrada Chinuch, and is run as an official Ministry of Education program in Israel through the preschool system. I think most of the Israeli preschools, I think they do eight books a year, go out through the school system. The teachers use the books in the classroom and then they go home with the kids. In the US, the books are mailed directly to families. In Australia, we mail directly to families. In South Africa, it goes out through the school system. The program has slowly, slowly grown. So out of Harold's backyard, garage, the few hundred kids who first received PJ Library, probably about 14 years ago, I think, we now service almost three quarters of a million children every month, get a book in some way, shape or form into their home. And that's across uh, 30 countries, I believe. Across 30 countries. And I want to say nine languages, but it's changing all the time. So I could be wrong. So it started in a garage like uh, Microsoft. It's, uh... Yes, a bit like that, <laughs> a bit like that. Could you tell me how the PJ Library books are selected? So it depends where you're referring to. Do you mean the PJ Library books we get in Australia? 
because there are different selection committees in oh, okay. each country. Okay, well, let's look at Australia. Okay, so we follow the American lineup. So for us, there is a committee in the US. We don't have anything to do with book selection. We have several requirements that we've stipulated. There are a couple of themes that don't appeal to Australian audiences. So Thanksgiving is meaningless. So we have requested not to receive Thanksgiving books, but 99% of the books that come to families in Australia are selected by the selection committee that sits in Agawam, Massachusetts at PJHQ. The UK and South Africa have their own selection committee. In Australia, we send a different book for every age group. So if your child or grandchild is under age one, they might get a book just called Rosh Hashanah with Uncle Max. It's a special non-terrible paper. (laughs) So kids can chew on the paper. We send a book for every age. So we send a book for under one-year-olds, then a book for one to two-year-olds, two to three, three to four, four to five, five to six, six to seven, seven to eight. And I think there's an eight to nine. So we send eight to nine titles every month. What they do in the UK and South Africa is because they're sponsored by the chief rabbi, they are much more selective. So they don't want any books that veer outside of orthodoxy. And Mm. so they send half the number of titles to many more children because their subscriber base is much larger than ours, but they choose from what the US selects. Israel have a whole different program. They Mm. follow the ministry guidelines and the countries where the books are written in-house. So, for example, in Russia, they select from Russian uh, authors. Portugal, they do a mixture of translating and a mixture of Portuguese authors and so on and so forth. So really very much depends on the, the needs of the country. Fascinating. Australian authors are welcome to submit their manuscripts to PJ Library. So if you head to pjlibrary.org, There is a tab where you can submit a manuscript. They're very, 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 very selective. Um, (laughs) So we've never had a successful submission. There are two, three Australian authors on the PJ lineup, and they're all authors who predate me. So since I have been, I know a handful of people who've submitted manuscripts, but none of them have been successful. It's a challenge for your listeners. It, It certainly is. Tough hurdles, obviously. Are books the only resources offered by the Australian PJ Library? We used to send, in every December, we used to send a CD. As it turns out, most people no longer have CD players, so we no longer send CDs. PJ Library has its own channel on Spotify that families can access all the time. So there are still PJ Library musicians. It's a big thing in the US. Their music is now available on Spotify. What we do is instead of sending books all year round, at least once a year, we send some sort of additional resource that goes with the book. Mm. So for example, the latest resource that we sent was a calendar. We sent a a calendar with the idea of why Jewish time is different to Christian or, or secular time, how the Jewish day starts the night before with reusable stickers and you, put, you can stick it on the fridge and you can put in your birthday and Rosh Hashanah and all these different things. So that went out in August. I believe there is something exciting coming for Pesach next year, which I've seen bits and pieces of. And these additional activities are really just to get families together to get excited about a festival or about an idea. We call it something beyond the books. Mm. Could you just give us a brief history of the PJ Library in Australia, how it started and uh, where it is today? 
So it started because someone from an organization in Sydney called Shalom, someone from Shalom went to the US and was shown a PJ Library book. And they went, wow, this is a great concept. How do we get that to Australia? PJ Library at that time didn't really operate outside of North America and Israel. And the Israeli program is a very different program to what operates elsewhere because of the government uh, sponsorship, support and requirements. It was started here in Sydney. It served only New South Wales and ACT because of the funding through JCA, um, which was limited to those two states. And it started very much like I imagine Harold started in his garage. You know, the books came into the office. We had, I don't know, 400 subscribers. By the time I started working at PJ Library in Sydney seven and a bit years ago, I think we were up to about 600 subscribers. The books would literally arrive, you know, 30 books per box. As if there were two of us, we would open the boxes, unpack the books, count them. We used an Excel spreadsheet. We would put stickers on the books and we would stack them in our office and we would email the spreadsheet back to the US to say, yes, we received the correct amount of books or no, we're missing books. Then we had a wonderful team of grandparents who would come into our office once a month. We served them tea. We had story time. And they packed the books. Our photocopy machine didn't print directly onto the envelope. So we had a whole, (laughs) like you had to print the stickers. You had to make sure the right sticker went with the right books. We packed them. We had a lovely postman who was Jewish who would come with his (laughs) wagon and load up these 700 envelopes into his car and take them down to his post office in Bronte. And he would organize the postage for us. He is now a PJ Library grandparent. We hand-delivered his grandchildren's first books to him. So there's quite a beautiful story. By the time we approached 1,000 subscribers, it became too big an operation. I mean, there wasn't enough space in our office to house boxes with 1,000 books, and we just couldn't. I mean, it was very sad. We have to say goodbye to these beautiful grandparents. But then we, we had to formalize, and we now use a mailing house. So from when I started seven years ago with 600-something subscribers in New South Wales and ACT. PJ Library is now PJ Library Australia and New Zealand, Mm. and we send out 4,000 books a month, 10 months of the year. We have 14 families in Tasmania, which to me is just phenomenal. We send books to, I think we have a few families in in the Northern Territories, to places with names I can't pronounce. (laughs) And we've grown. So the program was originally from six months to six years. Now it goes from birth to almost nine years. Mm. So it's grown significantly. And we've grown our funder base because we've had to have funders, uh, donors outside of New South Wales. So we now work with the Beeson Family Foundation in Melbourne and with the Erdy Foundation, always looking for more funders because it's not a cheap program to run because the cost to the family is zero and because postage in Australia is obscenely expensive and it's grown. It's become a really magnificent, magnificent thing to look at. Oh, it's a tremendous achievement. I'm not sure whether you uh, mentioned, but the, the children keep the books. Yes. Harold's vision was that every child should have a library that grows mm. with them. We don't refer to it as a library because a library you return the books to we, we call it PJ Library because you should read the books at home in your pajamas <laughs> with your, your families and the books. It's a gift. The books mm-hmm. come to you. The aim is that by the time a child turns eight, if they have been with PJ Library since 
zero. They should have 100 books on their shelves mm-hmm. that are their books that they can keep and give to their children and grandchildren. That's the idea. Yes, it's just fantastic. And I should add, uh, before we close up, that uh, donations to this wonderful organisation can be made through the PJ Library website. Uh, Just simply type in PJ Library into your search engine and follow the prompt. And it's hard to imagine uh, many organisations that deserve funding than this one. I mean, the gift of a book is, uh, is an absolute treasure. Justine Sademan, many thanks for joining us on Machayan and for describing the important and simply outstanding service the PJ Library offers to the Jewish community in Australia. Very much appreciated. Thanks for having me. And I will just add that anyone who wants to sign up a child or grandchild, the same link will help you out. So feel free to to sign up as many kids as, as you want. Yes, and spread the word. Spread the love, yes. Thank you. Thanks, Mari. Tell me a story, tell me a story, tell me a story, remember what you said. You promised me, you said you would, you gotta give in so I'll be good. Tell me a story, then I'll go to bed. Oh, worry, worry, worry ends my day. Comes the time to go home without my raisin pay. Home by the fire where a man can just relax Slippers there by the chair Not a worry, not a care Along comes Junior swinging his little axe Tell me a story, tell me a story Tell me a story, remember what you said Tell me about the bird and bees How do you make the chicken sneeze Tell me a story, then I'll go to bed Came home so late one evening last July Played a little poker, the time had passed me by Shoes in my hand and my darling wife in bed Up the stairs saying a prayer, then a voice comes through the air Hiya there, Daddy, remember what you said Tell me a story, tell me a story Tell me a story, remember what you said Tell me how your eye got black Because the doorway hit you back Tell me a story Then I'll go to bed Once upon a time I remember long ago Don't go back in history Your memory's kind of slow Stop your noisy talking Till I finish with my tale Once upon Upon a what? Upon your back you'll get a swat Tell me about the fish you caught That's bigger than a whale Tell me a story You promised me, you said you would You got to give in, so I'll be good Here's a tale you'll never forget And now get up to bed Ha <laughs> come on daddy, tell me a story Explore Israel with Effie Masada, Caesarea, Jerusalem For many, these places are no more than the name of a city or national park However, for others, these places are far more than just names of a place on a map These sites are some of the many hidden gems which exemplify and are an integral part of our Jewish history, heritage and culture. Allow me to take you on a journey back into time and see history unfold before your eyes. Tread on the land where ancient mighty empires once existed and ruled 
and walk in the footsteps of the biblical figures from the Old and New Testament in order to hear, feel, touch and taste this magical land of Eretz Israel. Explore Israel with Effie for an unforgettable experience. Yakobi, Shalom Aleichem, welcome back to Lechayim. Shalom, Shalom, Boker Tov, Chavarim from Effie here in Eretz Yisrael. Hello, hello, hello. Effie, I saw some photos on Facebook. You're out on the hustings last week um, with a dozen or so Australian expats touring, guiding them. Yeah, that was great. That was a lot of fun and uh, really to help get people out of their homes and that. And uh, I decided the time was right. People are traveling internally. And so uh, I got this bunch, which is all people that we know, and took them down to uh, South Tel Aviv around the Shalom Tower, the Rothschild Boulevard, and the area around there to show them uh, the origins of Tel Aviv and to talk about the architecture, the lifestyle, humorous stories. Awesome. It's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Take them to the old town hall. I've been there. Ah, Independence Hall. Yeah, right. But it's it's closed. It's uh, undergoing massive, massive renovations. So that'll take at least, I would say, another six or seven months before it's open to the public. But other than that, there's so much more to see. And uh, if you can get a grab of people and take them out there, they have a wonderful time. So we had an absolute ball. So it was great. It's good to be back in the field. And uh, in actual fact, if things go ripe at the end of this month, God willing, I have a big mission coming out from uh, London, and uh, we'll talk about more on that if it really does come about. So uh, let's hope. Let's hope. Where are you taking us tonight? Right. Well, today, Chaverim, we're going up to Nachal Chermon and the Banyas Nature Reserve, a phenomenal place. So, guys, let's go explore Israel with Effie on 92.3 FM, 3 triple Z, Lechaim. And today we're heading up north. We're going to do the Golan and the Upper Galilee extensively. We're going to Nachal Hermon and the Banyas Falls Nature Reserve. That's just right on Route 99 between Kriyat Shmone and Masadeh. Year-round, you can spend from half an hour up to two or three or four hours, depending on the hiking trails that you want. Small entrance fee, worth every penny of it. So, Nachal Hermon, the spring or the river, is the most eastern of the three water sources for the Jordan River. Its volume is smaller than the other streams, but it's noteworthy for several unique environmental features. The derivation of its waters are entirely from the runoff at the melting snow on the Hermon. The mountain acts as a gigantic sponge, absorbing the melting snow on the slopes and discharging it from springs at its base. Nachal Hermon emerges from beneath a huge cave. There are grounds for assuming that in prehistoric times, the stream gushed forth from inside the cave itself until an earthquake changed its course. In ancient times, the place was holy. For the Canaanite Semitic tribes, it was a place of worship to the god Baal. And during the Hellenistic period, to the shepherd god Pan. Phenomenal stuff that you can see the remnants of Greek temples right in the backyard of your country. The Nachal Hermon Reserve, which includes the stream and its banks up to the head of the channel, continues with its stream until it exits on the plain north of Kibbutz Day Nehemia. At its junction, it meets Nachal Dan and within a kilometer to form the head of the Jordan River. However, two kilometers downstream, next to Kibbutz Kfar Bloom, the river splits into two channels and only rejoined below the Hula Conservation Area. You can do all these hiking trails. The volume in the 
by Nachal Chemon is not great, but it reaches full strength in winter. Nevertheless, the stream with all its strong current, waterfalls, cliffs and trees constitute an important part of what has been coined a land of many streams. Major trail that people do are from the parking lot at the entrance of the Banyas Reserve. Ascend the wide steps to the Cave of Pan. On the wall beside the cave, there are carved niches in which were placed statues of the god Pan himself. A city was built here beside the water source by Philip, this or Philippi, the son of Herod the Great, and was called Caesarea Philippi. But over the years, this name fell into disuse, and it was called by its early name of Panyas, after the Greek god. In Arabic, there is no P. Hence, you will hear that most people call it Banyas. Josephus Flavius states that an underground aqueduct linked the source of the stream to the rum pool, which was the true source of the Jordan River. He recounts that straw was thrown into the rum pool and that it came out in the Banyas cave. This location is also regarded as a holy site in Islam. At the top of the cliff is a grave holy to the Muslims, Nabi Khader. The cave with niches on its side, the crystal clear water that flows from beneath the mountain, the surrounding trees, all this makes for a pastoral environment. Close by are the ruins of the ancient settlement of Panyas, which had been partially excavated. So guys, you can spend literally, as I said, from half an hour to up to four hours hiking in and out, seeing phenomenal remains of the structures at the time from King Herod, the Greek era before that, and the Roman era after that. So do yourselves a favor, go and visit the Banyas Nature Reserve and all its hiking trails, or just sit down by the pools with the kiddies and have a great time. So that's all from me for this week. From Effie, until next week, when we once again explore Israel with Effie on the Chaim to Life. Shalom, shalom. Effie, terrific. Before you go, Effie, all this time. I caught a Zoom last night from an organization called Kingdom Builders, uh, Christian Zion is very supportive of Israel. The Zoom was all about Besheba, and uh, they had highlights of the um, 100th um, commemoration four years ago. I was in Israel four years ago, and it took me back to when you uh, you took both myself and Glennis Lipson from Magandavadadom down yeah. to Besheba along the Anzac Trail and everything. Uh, it's coming up in uh, four days. Many say without the uh, Australian victory there, there you know, uh, no Israel. It was a, a massive mm-hmm. event, a massive event. And we're going to close tonight uh, with a terrific little song about Beersheba. It should be great. I'll be there as well with a lot of other expats, together with the Australian Ambassador, the Zionist Federation, together with Moriab and the vid that you had on your station a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it should be a great, great day to commemorate the liberation of Beersheba and the beginning of the ousting of the Turks from Palestine ending it back in 1918. And there is no doubt, and I tell it to every Australian guest that I come, Jewish or non-Jewish, that there is no doubt in my mind that without the liberation of Belsheva and the victories by the Anzac forces, not sure whether we would have today the State of Israel, because you recall the Belfort Declaration was declared after the liberation of Palestine. And that set in motion the events that led to the eventual state in 1948. Different tool. We will get to that when we do the Anzac Trail on air as well. Great stuff, mate. Look forward to it. All right. All the best, guys. Shalom, shalom, Litor. Welcome to the the Mythbusters. Just the facts, man. 
so in 2005, the definition first appears on the website of the European Union Agency, the EUMC, the European Monitoring Center on Racism and Xenophobia, which later became the Fundamental Rights Agency. And so they were looking specifically at a European context when developing this definition. And, and since then, Europe has been a real significant breeding and testing ground for the logics around the IHRA. And it was the UK that was the first country to formally adopt the definition. The logic at the core of the definition's examples, which is really where we put the lion's share of our attention, because the problems of the IHRA really are rooted in the definition's examples, right? Because the definition itself is a very pithy, short definition that offers us very little, actually. That's part of the problem of the definition. But in some kind of the thrust of it is this idea that anti-Zionism equals anti-Semitism, which is wrong, right? Put, put plainly. So, and in Europe, the history and lingering guilt after the Nazi Holocaust is part of how I think Israel's enablers and defenders have been so successful in forwarding this definition. Rabbi Alyssa Wise is a former Jewish Voice for Peace Deputy Director who was participating in an online event resisting the IHRA definition. Last week, when the majority of our Jewish community was happy to hear the announcement by Prime Minister Scott Morrison endorsing the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance working definition of anti-Semitism, the so-called progressive left was denouncing its widespread adoption. Jewish Voice for Peace is essentially a bunch of Jews who have substituted their Jewishness with a perverse kind of universalism, where they concern themselves more with criticising Israel and cuddling up to pro-Palestinian activists. Weiss collaborates with the Palestinian Solidarity Campaign to ensure that they can continue unimpeded the bashing of Israel for its alleged grave violations of international law in Israel-Palestine. She reckons that Jews are taking advantage of a societal guilt complex over the Holocaust in order to push the IHRA working definition. She contends that the thrust of the definition is that anti-Zionism equals anti-Semitism, when Zionism isn't even mentioned in the definition. Wise is a committed supporter of BDS, and when Israel passed a law in 2017 barring entry for supporters of boycott of the Jewish state, she was one of the very first nominal Jews to be banned. Although the New Israel Fund does not openly support BDS, they have funded a number of other organisations that do support BDS. And Liam Gatroy, Executive Director of New Israel Fund Australia, has joined this progressive throng opposing the introduction of the IHRA working definition of anti-Semitism. Gatroy says that the working definition is increasingly being used to conflate anti-Semitism and criticism of Israel. According to Gatroy, enshrining the definition into policy and law has not been supported by a wide range of groups, including leading mainstream Jewish American organisations and even the definition's lead drafter. This last trope being a reference to Kenneth Stern. The IHRA working definition of anti-Semitism adopted in May 2016 is based on an earlier version developed in 2004-2005 and issued by the European Monitoring Centre on Racism and Xenophobia in March of 2005. The drafting and development of the working definition of anti-Semitism was a months-long collaborative process involving a score of individuals. This group included Kenneth Stern, who has since identified himself, or was described by others, as the author or primary drafter of the working definition. 
This is simply not true, but most troubling is the fact that this mythical elevated status is primarily touted because he is a vocal critic of using the working definition and thus a helpful, witting or unwitting, ally for those who today seek to discredit the IHRA working definition. Virtually all others who were involved in this development believed then and continue to believe now that the adoption and use of the working definition is an essential component in the fight against anti-Semitism. So-called progressive elements, how I hate this term progressive, which really means the opposite all too often, are urging governments to remain vigilant about the potential impact of this decision on vibrant discourse, especially on university campuses and in civil society. They are worried that valid pro-Palestinian voices are going to be quelled, and Israel will then be able to continue on its merry way with impunity, inflicting suffering on the Palestinians. This Mythbuster is by David Schulberg from the Israel Connection Program that listeners can listen to on J-Air, broadcasting live each week on Wednesdays from 4 to 5 p.m. and repeated Fridays 1 till 2 p.m. Well done again, David, with another totally on-point Mythbuster. And now for headlines from tomorrow's Australian Jewish News, the voice of Australia's Jewish community. With borders opening, might be next week in Jerusalem. IHRA definition drafters dispute adoption. Life for Defence may pursue fitness to stand trial. TBI taking rabbi plagiarism allegations very seriously. Back to school as lockdown ends. Community mourns Scopus stalwart. Herzog talks unicorns at AICC. Tensions between US and Israel over terror listings and settlements. Jewish state sends huge delegation to climate summit. Bennett and Putin reaffirm friendship. To read more coverage of local, federal and international news, opinion, arts, lifestyle and sport, pick up your copy of the Australian Jewish News from newsagents and supermarkets in southeast of Melbourne or for weekly home delivery, subscribe at subscribe.jewishnews.net.au. Once again, if you'd like to get in touch with the Israel Trade Commission Australia, the email is sydney at israeltrade, all one word, dot gov, dot il. And you should check out that Prime Minister Smart Mobility Summit clip that we played. It's at www.israeltrade.org.au and on the Israel Trade Commission Australia Facebook page. Okay, that's it for another Lachaim in the can, as they say in the movie and radio business. We wanted to play a little song dedication to David Blatt, a Yiddish mensch, better known as Jay Black, from the band Jay Black and the Americans, also known as The Voice, with some great hits. Jay passed away five days ago, aged 82. We'll keep the song till next week. Right, you'll find in about 15 minutes to half an hour a recording of tonight's Lachaim program at 3zzz.com.au. Click on the down arrow in the Listen to a Show square and scroll down to the Jewish group. You'll find it there. 
Links to YouTube recordings of tonight's interviews will be posted to the Lachaim and Morris Klein Facebook pages tomorrow. Digital Jewish News Daily for Australia and New Zealand. Please check out the other two programs that make up the Jewish group here at 3ZZZ. The Hebrew Hour, Shabbat Shalom, 3pm on Friday, and the Yiddish Hour, 11am on Sunday. If you'd like to contact us here at Lechaim, our email is lchaim3zzz at gmail.com. For only $16, please consider becoming a member of the Jewish group here at 3ZZZ. And for seniors, it's just $11. Again, click on 3zzz.com.au. Many thanks again to Team Lachaim, Dr. George Banky, the executive producer, Dr. Murray Frankel, and Jeff Deegan. As I mentioned at the end of Effie's stunning radio tour of Israel, I joined a Zoom last night which was dedicated to the charge of the Australian light horse in Beersheba 104 years ago, which undoubtedly changed the course of Jewish history with the commemoration happening this Sunday, October 31st. I indicated the Zoom was presented by Kingdom Builders, which is a Christian organisation very supportive of Israel. I have to make a correction. The Zoom was presented by SCAFI, the Southern Cross Alliance for Israel, another Christian organisation very, very supportive of Israel. I loved last night. It was excellent. I'll let everyone know next week where they can view it. So I thought we should close out tonight's Lachaim with our little song dedication to our Anzacs, and the Brave Light Horse Brigade with their brave, brave Aussie horses. So, it's till we take Beersheba. And don't forget, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie! So thank you for tuning in, and please join us again next week on L'Chaim. My name is Morris Klein. I'm Yisrael Chai, and peace. Spur up and on like Austin Ride on through dust and bullets Till we take the sheep Half a mile to the right We'll take the Turks by surprise Keep the trot, hold the line As we wait for the sign Clear the brow of the hill Keep it steady until We're in range of the guns Spur up and on like horsemen Ride on through dust and bullets Till we take the sheep Bayonets flash in the sun Johnny squint down their guns Captain Davies gives a yell We went at him like hell Riders fall, horses run Empty saddles splash with blood Turkish trenches fifty yards Squadron they led the charge Take the Sheba Spur up and on my horseman Ride on through dust and bullets Till we take the Sheba Slouch hat with plumes of fly And spur up and on my horseman Ride on through dust and bullets Till we take the Sheba
please leap up and over. Oh, and we'll take the sea, the spur up and on, why horse them ride on through dust and bullets till we take the sheba. Slouch hat with plumes of flying spur. 